At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Throughout the last half century, more of our stuff has been made somewhere else. My computer was made in China. My shirt was made in Peru. My coffee mug was made in Thailand. How did we get here? It's a classic American story. A factory is built in a town and becomes the biggest local employer. Then they realize they can produce those goods far more cheaply abroad. So the factory closes, people lose their jobs. But my guest today says bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. is possible. It's hard, but possible. Rachel Slade is a Boston-based journalist. She's a regular contributor to The Globe. Her new book is called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. Rachel, welcome to Say More. Thank you. And that was a mouthful and you mastered it. (laughs) (laughs) So you set out in this book to explore the death and possible rebirth of American manufacturing. And, you know, New England used to be this epicenter of textile and shoe manufacturing. You know, why has manufacturing been so hard to maintain in places like New England? You're right. New England was such a powerhouse. We made shoes here. We made textiles here. We made apparel here. So many things were manufactured in New England. You know, one thing that happened in in the late 80s was people started to really see this free trade thing coming. I think a lot of manufacturing companies were family owned and There weren't succession plans in place anymore. Mm. Um, They were also divesting. So they weren't necessarily investing in in high-tech equipment, like keeping up with the times. I think there was just a sense of, this is a losing proposition, a sense of despair here. And, um, you know, it really took root after the passage of NAFTA. You know, suddenly there were no, you know, penalties for offshoring labor to um, Canada and to Mexico and eventually to Central America. And, you know, as soon as that happened, we started to see cheaper stuff coming in and then companies just couldn't compete. Then when China um, joined the World Trade Organization in 2002 and got most favored nation status, goods were flooding in from, from China Um, that actually cost American consumers less than what they cost to produce. 
Can you talk about how the pandemic highlighted the need for domestic manufacturing? So I opened my book with the scene of, I think it was 2021. It was making the front pages of the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post. It was this huge armada, basically, of um, container ships off the coast of California, because that's where uh, most of the stuff from China lands. We couldn't dock and unload those um, ships fast enough. There was so much demand for imported goods, mostly consumer stuff ordered through Amazon, shipped direct to your house. And then we had empty shelves. We had drug shortages. We had PPE shortages. Do you know, I had a friend who wanted to get, this was during the pandemic, he wanted to work out. So he wanted to get some weights. We drove all around Massachusetts looking for just like weights. I mean, wow. that was horrifying. Oh, that's right. There was a shortage of them. <laughs> like yeah. well, everybody... you couldn't find them because everyone's working out at home. <laughs> yeah. The pandemic could not be a better wake up call because while it was horrifying and it will take us a long time to just emotionally recover, we're here. We know the problems and we have the capacity to rebuild because all of this manufacturing vanishing has happened within my lifetime. I mean, this is something that's only been happening for the past 30 years. So it's it's not it's not ancient history. This is new and we can reverse the trend. And we got it. We don't have a choice. Let's talk about the U- the government, I guess, the federal government in terms of policies towards manufacturing, because, you know, President, when Trump was in office, he he talked a lot about bringing jobs back from China. And now with President Biden, I mean, even though these leaders couldn't be any more different, I mean, it seems like he's, you know, running with the same ball. I mean, he really wants to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. I think he's invested a lot of money. Um, I mean, he's also pro-labor. Um, and so uh, probably the most pro-labor president we've ever had. And so can you talk about what Biden has done in terms of, um, I-, I guess, bringing new life to manufacturing in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, OK, so let's let's back up a little bit, because this was an issue that not a lot of people were talking about. Right. So Trump in 2016 was one of the first person, people, I think, really on the national stage who identified this as an issue that a lot that, you know, a lot of American workers were concerned about that was the loss of jobs and the loss of manufacturing. So then Biden comes in and he had a very aggressive and compelling build back better plan. Now, that a lot of that didn't actually make it into law. We got the Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically to support manufacturing. And the ultimate goal, whether we're talking about, you know, Republicans or Democrats, I don't care who you're talking about, everybody's thinking about that. This is building back capacity. That's what we need to do. We need to we need to rebuild our ability to build things, <laughs> which is a very simple premise, but a very but a very foundational one. In fact, that was the goal when George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, the, our, the founders of our country, first like got this whole thing spinning. Their first focus was how do we support manufacturing in the United States? Because we had none. 
we weren't allowed, you know, England saw us as a big, you know, mall of America, like we were going to buy all all these British imported goods. And so we were, we were just buyers. Um, that's what we have become again. What kind of lessons exist for trying to scale up American manufacturing? In order for Americans to scale up manufacturing, one of the first things that I think we need to do is start to think more about high school education. What are we teaching kids? So a lot of like the top students right now are very interested in working with robotics, um, you know, working obviously in the digital world, um, working with AI. If we start in high school, connecting students to production, like the, the joys and rewards of production, getting them to start to think about the material world as something that's actually made and something that they can actually get into and innovate. Then, uh, and, and by the way, through robotics, through all the things that they love, um, then I think we're going to start to see a change in how young people think about manufacturing. There's, I think there's going to be a lot more curiosity, um, and especially since it's not sitting behind the desk. Mm-hmm. You know, in many cases, manufacturing means like getting your hands dirty, getting into things, solving real world problems about how things work um, and how you can make things better. Making, producing mm-hmm. scratches and a very human itch that we all yeah. have to see the fruits of our labor. So it's no longer this abstract thing that's just has so much crushing anxiety because you don't even know where you stand. And and by the way, in, in a lot of a lot of people's worlds right now, like the only way that they determine their success is through their the size of their bank account. What I'm trying to do is like reshape how we measure success through production, through community building, and also through cross-pollination. The great thing about manufacturing also is that it allows people of all different kind of orientations, backgrounds, understandings, um, skill levels to come together to innovate. More of my conversation with Rachel Slade after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com commercial. This is what it sounds like. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel, tell us about American Roots. This is the main company that you followed for three years to tell their story. They're an incredible company. So it's a husband and wife team, Ben and Whitney Waxman. Important to note that the person really behind the manufacturing effort here is a woman, Whitney, um, who figured out how to manufacture um, apparel 
all American sourced using American labor in the United States. So there are a lot of companies you probably could have picked. Why them? Why American Roots? And why the Waxmans? You're right. There are a lot of companies out there that produce things in America. What I was really looking for was a company that was absolutely dedicated to its workforce and committed to not offshoring. So Waxens started, like I said, with, with, with an ethical and moral code, and they are sticking by that to the end. This company is a unicorn. I was thrilled when I found them. I had been looking for them for a decade. I had. Oh, really? This is the oh, book wow. I wanted to write, but I didn't have a company to write about. And when wow. I found them, whew, it was just one of those things, you know, you get the, like the chills on the back of your neck, like they had like hair stands up. I just, when I first started talking to them, I was just like, I can't believe they exist. So one of my favorite parts of the book is, is about the refugee community. And I'm not sure if Ben and Whitney could have pulled off American roots without having this refugee community in rural, in Maine of all places. So explain to me kind of how important or how they really lucked out, right, in in having this refugee community there um, in Maine to help them start American Roots. The first challenge was creating a workforce out of nothing. They're up in Maine. There are, the industry is gone, right? Um, there are very few companies in the area, in New England, doing the kinds of things that they're doing. And so they had to find workers, train workers, and keep workers. And I think in America, that's very hard right now. So when they started their company in Portland, Maine, they thought originally that it was going to be apparel workers who had lost their jobs after NAFTA. So, you know, power worker, apparel workers maybe who had been unemployed for like a decade or so. And that's not who walked in the door. The people who started walking through that door were new Americans. They were people who um, had come from Angola, who had come from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who had come from Iraq. So um, these were populations that had been through a lot and we're just looking to rebuild their lives in a safe place. I mean, we have a migrant crisis in Massachusetts and other states. So I was thinking that, I mean, a lot of these workers, I mean, they they, they want to work. Actually, they come to the U.S. for work, to build a new life. I mean, they're chasing the American dream. And um, I, I was just thinking about those uh, the, the people that Ben and Whitney were able to hire. They probably weren't working, you know, or, or they or certainly they probably didn't have as good paying jobs as they they would have gotten um, at American Roots. And so I feel like there's a real opportunity to to actually start manufacturing and to train workers, train migrants. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, your book will, <laughs> you know, give a roadmap on how it can be done. So um, in the Globe's Ideas section, you wrote a new essay about how Boston should bring manufacturing into the city. So explain that argument. <laughs> In a nutshell, 
when you have innovators and manufacturers and users all in the same location, you have the possibility for um, incredible growth and innovation. And um, we have hospitals right here. We have MIT and Harvard and BC and all these great schools with, st with students coming out ready to do the next thing, you know, solve the problems. Um, and so there's also a big movement in Europe. Um, it's called the circular economy. This is another thing that I'm arguing. Cities produce a tremendous amount of waste and they also consume a lot. And so part of this vision, and it's a European vision, so I'm, I'm copying greater thinkers than me who are over in Europe, but the idea is collect your waste, have recycling facilities, processing plants in the periphery of the city, um, to then create raw materials that then can be brought back into the city for small manufacturing. Um, you know, the hospitals have incredible demand for um, 3D printed parts and pieces um, and medical devices. There's an incredible demand, obviously, for pharmaceuticals. Um, and then there's also just lots of demand for consumer products that can all be um, manufactured right here. So here's my thought. We've got this serious real estate problem where downtown buildings are empty, but we also have a transportation system that's designed kind of as a starburst. It was designed to bring people from the outer boroughs into the city. And so the concept is, why don't we figure out ways to, um, to get manufacturing into these office space, or traditional office spaces, um, and start a circular economy that supports both innovation and supports green um, manufacturing and green uses right here in the city. We could actually have our own little economy right here where we're supporting each other. I want to talk about if this, if writing this book has changed the way you shop. I can't say that my habits have changed too much because like this has been a passion of mine forever. But I will say that I've uh, I've noticed that my husband is actually paying a lot more attention and he's really happy with the products that he's been buying that are made um, domestically. And he's starting to realize like, oh, so instead of buying five pairs of pants that are all going to be dead in a, in a year, I can buy two really good ones and they'll last me I don't know, five years or probably longer. I don't know. How how long do men wear their pants? I don't know. Um, so um I think I think I think just folks actually seeing what happens when you do buy good quality stuff, that's a game changer because so many of us have been trained to look for the cheapest thing, you know, or to find something and then hunt, hunt, hunt to to for the lowest price. And that's that's a short-term gain, long-term loss. So a lot of us want to buy American, but but it's hard. I mean, it, you know, to, to check every label. But I think I've heard you talk about, you have an idea for Amazon. Can you talk about that? Yes. Okay. So this would be a burden, burden on Amazon, but... But Amazon, you're so smart. Can you do this one thing for us, for Americans? Um when, when I'm searching for stuff, what I'm desperate for is a little checkbox on, on the left-hand side where you check your size and brand and everything else. This is made in USA. Here's the problem. It's got to be vetted. 
almost anybody can say made in USA. And quite honestly, if you've ever looked for made in USA, and I do this obviously a lot online, um, you're going to get fed a lot of American companies that are not manufacturing in the US or make like a few products in the US. So it's a bait and switch. Um, the good news is that actually there are directories out there for consumer goods, consumer American goods. What are the best ones to use? Yeah. So I was actually really excited the other day when I gave a talk at the Harvard bookstore. Um, these guys came up to me and they handed me this Crafted with Pride. That's the name of the book. It's it's a yellow pages. Remember the yellow pages? It's actually <laughs> yellow. The pages are yellow. And these guys have done the hard work of um, vetting um, accessories companies, activewear, bags, blankets, boots, denim, eyewear, gloves, kids, military, outdoors, sneakers. Everything in this book is made in USA. They have 750 oh, wow. companies that they list here and it's vetted. I mean, that's what's oh, so wow. important, right? Yeah. Is American Roots in there? Did you check to see if American Roots is there? Yes, or it has to American be? Roots is in there. They're oh, in there. that's great. Um, yeah, they're, they're in there. Um, and then there are other directories as well. But I mean, it, it, it requires some work and I want to make it easier for people. So I challenge Amazon. Be smart, use all your innovation skills, your algorithms, whatever, to help us find the products that we're actually looking for. Make it easy for us. Reading a book about manufacturing can be depressing. Actually, I should say reading a book about American manufacturing can be depressing. But when I finish reading your book, I mean, you really have hope for the future of American manufacturing. Why? I am extremely optimistic because, surely. We don't have a choice. At the end of the day, what we have been doing with our economy, in my opinion, and a lot of other people agree with me, is unsustainable. We're going to get to a point where we can't keep doing what we're doing. We're not going to have the capacity to build things for ourselves. We're not giving our children the opportunities um, that others had um, to find diverse pathways towards success. Let's take this as as a clarion call to get our act together and think more about making stuff here and supporting each other and rebuilding society even better than we did before. Well, Rachel, as a business columnist, you know I can talk about manufacturing all day long. So <laughs> I am so glad you're able to be on the show to indulge me to talk about manufacturing. Uh, Rachel Slade is a journalist based here in Boston. Her new book is called Making It in America, The Almost Impossible Quest to Manufacture in the USA and How It Got That Way. She also has a new essay in the Globe Ideas section on how cities can be part of the manufacturing boom. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer with help from Scott Hellman. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. <laughs>